I would love for teams to and organizations to create more psychological safety for employees. And then everything else can, can go from there. But creating enough psychological safety where it is okay to talk about mental health. It, it is okay to talk about toxic productivity. It is okay to talk about all of these topics without fear of being judged, without fear of being considered lazy, without fear of being considered not performant in your job. If I could do that, uh, that's the number one thing I would change. I suppose I need to start by thanking Twitter, really, because it throws up some gems every now and again. And um, I really... I'm so interested in your work and your journey as well. So yeah, I'd love to hear about how you describe yourself and uh, what you're up to. Yeah, I um, I do a lot of things at the same time. I have always been this way. At the moment, the two main things I'm focusing on are Nest Labs, my company, where I write about neuroscience-based tips and strategies for knowledge workers to be more productive and more creative while taking care of their mental health. So that's one half. And the other half is studying neuroscience at King's College in London, where I'm doing a master's uh, of science there, and uh, I'm going to graduate before the end of the, of the year. And I've been kind of combining the two by using everything I study at uni to write the content and build the community at Nest Lab. So they have actually become in the past year much more intertwined than they were mm. before. Mm. And um, in the past, I was working at Google first in London and then in San Francisco in the digital health team where uh, I was kind of looking after partnerships and marketing for uh, apps and smartwatches that were helping people kind of make the most of their time and also take care of their physical and mental health. So that was my past life. So digital health was how digital products can help, can support health. Yes, it's, uh, and it's both about physical and mental health. I think lots of people think about physical health first when they think about the apps, like running apps or apps to count your calories and look after your diet, etc. But actually there's also a, very, a very big category of apps that are more about mental health and mm. that goes from apps that help you track your sleep for example or also apps that help you track your screen time so you can be a bit more mindful of how you use your phone and so you don't spend too much time on social media for example so it's really anything that is trying to use technology in a helpful way so people are healthier both physically and mentally yeah yeah so I, I'm an applied psychologist. And so as soon as I heard you talking about your master's and your company, I totally saw that there'd be that interchange and you'd kind of end up uh, with it kind of influencing each other. I'm really curious about your thoughts on metacognition, your thoughts on productivity. I suppose I've talked to lots of people, including some psychologists, but never someone who's trying to apply psychology to support productivity and well-being. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting you're an applied psychologist because I think lots of what I'm I'm working on is probably stuff that you've also read about in the in the past. But um, it it stems initially from a bit of a, a personal story and journey. Uh, while I was working at Google and uh, and then in other jobs, I went through burnout several times. So once I started studying neuroscience, one of the areas I wanted to explore was, is there anything here, any science that could be applied to avoid that, to be more productive, but in a balanced, healthy way? If you look on the internet, or if you read books about productivity, a lot of them are about being being productive for the sake of productivity. It's about, you know, working as much as possible, getting as much done as possible. And there's very little about taking that step back to ask yourself, do I really want to work on this? Am I the right person to work on this? Maybe someone else is a better person to to do this? Or is there a better way to approach that challenge? So metacognition is really just thinking about thinking. It's about taking that step back, being aware of your own awareness and constantly questioning your approach and your strategies 
and ask yourself, is it the smartest way to work? Is it the smartest way to think about this? Or is there a better way? Sometimes people may think, oh, that's a waste of time. I just need to get these things done. Short term, yes. Getting started may take a little bit of a longer time because you're, you're just thinking about what's the best approach. Longer term, though, people find that not only they work better, but the work is also more enjoyable and they do end up working faster because they took the time to really think about the best way to work on something. So metacognition is really that thinking about thinking. Yeah, and I really empathize both personally and professionally with what you just described in terms of sometimes when you are tired or you're, you're feeling a lot of stress, you just try to plow through. You're like, let me, okay, cool. I'm not going to sleep as much. I'm going to eat less, you know, whatever it is. I need to make more time to be more productive. And actually it's the worst, it's the worst thing you can do. But I also see that, and you know, we, we know this from neuroscience as well, that when, when you're experiencing high levels of arousal, actually you're less able to employ metacognitive strategies. So yeah, what, what, what you might say to someone who was kind of at that point where they're like, I just don't have the time right now. Like, what do I do help? Absolutely. And uh, this is what also mindful productivity is really about is ideally if you're mindful about the way you work and there are lots of, of int- different strategies that may work for, for some people and not for others. But if, if you have this mindful mindset in terms of how you work, you would not end up in that scenario where you're you know, completely lost and you don't know exactly how to go about it. If that happens though, the, the best thing again is to take that step back and to really try and figure out what are your current priorities. We only have a certain number of hours in the, in the day and something that we're absolutely terrible at in general is kind of predict and evaluate how long something is going to take so I see lots of people who there's lots of reasons why you may end up burning out and there are some very deep ones that probably require to actually talk to someone who's going to help you because can be a proper crisis of meaning or something more complex going on there there's also lots of people who burn out just because they have a hard time managing their time they say yes to everything. They, when there's a colleague who's like, hey, can you give me a hand on this? It's going to take five minutes. Instead of stopping and asking themselves, yeah, quote unquote, five minutes. Instead of stopping and asking themselves, is it really going to take five minutes or how long is it going to take? And just kind of, you know, always kind of try and, and, and think about this. Um, and if they realize that they probably say yes to too many things, again, there's nothing that's like really fixed. Like it's, it's a process. So it's completely okay to go back to people and say, Hey, I know last week I told you that I was going to do this, but I looked at my schedule and it really doesn't look like I'm going to be able to fit this in. So I'm telling you now, so you can find an alternative way to get this done. So for me, avoiding burnout or managing burnout when it's starting to, to happen is really never giving in and think and and into the idea that you're stuck because you may be struggling right now but you're it's very rare that you're actually stuck you can unstuck yourself by thinking about the way you think about work that's such a lovely way to put it and you made me think of i don't know if you're familiar with paul gilbert and uh the work on compassion and and the mind yeah i didn't read it like i know about it but i haven't read Uh, any of his proper work or books so I suppose something that compassion focused therapy talks about is is the interaction between what they call the new brain the old brain and the environment you made me think of all of the wonderful things that we can do cognitively like imagination and planning and you know these are invaluable skills but they're also things that can make us feel really unhelpful emotions like I said yes last week but Anne-Laura is going to be really, she's going to think I'm a bad person. I'm not organized. You know, and our imagination runs away with us. And we, we find ourselves getting further away from the relational truth, which is they'll understand they're a human, you know, <laughs> it'll be okay. Um, but yeah, you can think you're stuck. And you, you drew a really interesting distinction between different types of burnout. And you talked about a crisis of 
purpose. I think those are your words. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. That that sounded really powerful. Yeah. Sometimes people think they're burning out just because they're they have too much work, but really burnout is more about a feeling of lack of control uh, over the work that you're doing. And so the kind of easier to deal with is lack of control because again, like you just say yes to, to whatever tasks, but you still believe in the work you're doing. You, you're still excited about it. You're still excited about the mission. Um, it's just that you feel like you have lack of control over your overall schedule and the amount of work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so this one is a bit more logistical and yes, it can involve difficult, difficult conversations where you have to tell a colleague that actually you can't do it. That's easier to manage. But sometimes the lack of control is deeper and it's a feeling of lack of control over the general direction of your life. You know, obviously there's more to life than work, but work does take a big place and a lot of space in terms of, you know, just in terms of number of waking hours that we're at work. Work is important for, for you know, to feel fulfilled and, and, and happy to many people. And if they're doing work where they don't feel like it is getting them in the direction that makes sense to them. That is aligned with, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of Ikigai. No, what's that? um, It's a Japanese word uh, that kind of means a way of life, life direction. And what it says is that uh, in order to, to find meaning in life, purpose in life, and in your work, you need to find something where you're, um, you're good at it. People want to pay you for it. You enjoy doing it. And you believe that this is something the world wants. And if you manage it, if you imagine a Venn diagram with these four areas, if you manage to find something that's at the intersection of those four areas, that's your ikigai. And that's something that would probably be able to drive you. You will want to wake up in the morning and, and work on whatever you're working if you have all of this. And sometimes it, for most people, it's kind of okay if one of them is missing. You can be like, this is something I enjoy doing. I'm good at it and the world needs it, but I'm not going to make a lot of money. Fine. Lots of people in that situation. Or... I'm okay if I don't necessarily uh, think that this is something I enjoy a lot, but it's paying well. Lots of people can do this. If you start missing a lot of these, it's more likely you're going to burn out because you have no meaning. There's nothing coming out of this experience that is helping you grow in a way or, or another. So yeah, so that's what I was referring to when I was talking about lack of purpose or lack of meaning in your work is when there are too many sources of meaning or enjoyment or fulfillment that are missing in the current work you're doing. And in that case, unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, that can be a good thing. It may be worth it exploring changing work, changing careers, finding a more fulfilling work situation. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, uh, and we see the, the importance of meaning and purpose across human stories. Yeah, that really resonates. You reminded me of an organization called Project Wayfinder. Have you heard of them? Yes, I've heard about them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're really big into purpose and they have these wonderful toolkits that help you to kind of explore your values and and, and kind of uh, the things that are important to you. And it made me wonder if you've, you know, you've created any resources or, or tools for helping people to explore the kind of purpose side of things. Yeah, I haven't created any tools, but this is, Definitely at Nest Labs, a topic that keeps on coming back when we do we do meetups uh, every few weeks where everyone can talk and share whatever challenges they're going through and everyone can learn from each other. And this concept of meaning and purpose keeps on coming back. So I should probably create something more formal because it's a good signal when, when people keep on coming back to a topic. Mm-hmm. And, and I think not only at Nest Labs, I think our, our whole generation... Uh, is currently going through this crisis of meaning where we, you know, we both have access to so many more opportunities, but like we also have this uh, other choice and we also have this very long uh, list of areas of problems that should be tackled in the next few years. And I know that when I talk to some people in the community, some of them, they 
generally tell you I'm paralyzed because I don't even know what challenge to start tackling first. There's so many big ones. So yeah, it's uh, I think it's uh, it's difficult for people to figure out what is the, the thing that the one thing that I'm going to be focusing on. And this is why I do find the framework of, of Ikigai a, a good one because instead of just thinking in an abstract way about what's the biggest problem I can work on, it's really about finding the intersection of what's the, the biggest problem I can work on where I can contribute at my level and that I would actually enjoy working on, uh, which kind of shifts the, the way of thinking about it. Yeah. And when you first described it, the psychologist in me was like, there could be a scale with the four different sections and we could, we could measure this and help people understand it. And, you know, yeah, maybe that's something that you might create in the future. Yeah. Tools are always helpful to you as a, especially when people don't know where to start. I always find such tools as a great way to at least start the conversation with oneself, that internal conversation when we don't know where to start um so yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of these kind of scales they're, they're personally i think they're never enough um and and i also think that it can be unhealthy when people think that they're going to fill a questionnaire or a scale and they're going to get the answers whereas for me they're they're more of a starting um like you know a basis for a conversation just opening these doors and maybe start seeing things in a different way yes yeah that's a really important thing to hold on to that sometimes especially if we're feeling overwhelmed we can fixate on this questionnaire is going to be the answer or whatever it is it's often more complicated than that and it made me think about from what i understand and and i've been going through nest lab's website uh, which i love by the way there's so much in there i wish i could talk to you about but i i wondered how much you think about the systems so organizations and how much your work is more about the individuals yeah, I currently very much focus on individuals just because, again, ikigai. And I do think that right now I can have more impact by helping individuals who have identified that they're struggling with their mental health at work or with burnout. And as an individual, I can have this direct connection with them through my content, telling them I've been through this. These are some tools and strategies that you may want to explore and to help yourself get unstuck. That being said, through individuals, I've also had lots of companies that start reaching out and saying like, you know, an individual reading Nest Labs or being part of the community saying, I found this so helpful for myself. I think it may be helpful for my team or in my organization. So I did start doing since the beginning of the, of the year more workshops. But I do think that in any case, even if you work with an organization to provide tools at scale, within an organization in order for people to find answers in terms of finding that balance, mindful proactivity, metacognition, etc. It is a bit of an individual journey where people need to experiment with themselves and figure out what works for them and what doesn't. There is really no one size fits all answer to what's the best way to work. What's the best way to think. So it, in essence, I think that organizations can help be catalysts by helping employees think about these questions, but they can't really create a very strict framework, asking people to work in a very specific way or do a very specific thing, because that's not really how the human mind works. Yeah. And I think I can totally imagine how someone might come to a workshop or a company might put on a workshop and that would facilitate them empowering the individuals to be able to let them know okay here are some of the things that are going to be working for us as a team or you know here are the processes that we really find useful these ones not so much you you mentioned your own personal experiences uh which you described as burnout I suppose I wonder how you first realized that something was wrong. And the, the rationale behind that question is that I think quite often people who later describe what they're going through as burnout can find it quite hard in the moment to realize because they're in such a state of acute stress response. 
so yeah from your point of view I guess I wonder like what what made you realize okay something's up here in in my case um I after the fact once I realized I looked back and I saw so many signs that to me now seem obvious but exactly as you said I completely ignored one of the signs at the time was that I was not really seeing my friends anymore it was like every evening was too busy I had stuff to do for work I would be working very late um and and I really enjoyed my work actually so this is partly why I was probably lying to myself too saying I actually enjoy doing this so this is fine and it'd been like you know maybe three weeks I hadn't had a drink or dinner or any social thing happening in my life so that's one that I actually didn't notice at all while it was happening this is a sign that I saw later the sign that made me realize when it happened and which made me you know, kind of like go back and be like, okay, I need to figure this out because this is not good, is when I literally started crying in the middle of a Zoom. It was not Zoom at the time. Uh, <laughs> it was Google Hangouts. But <laughs> on the video call, I um, at the time I was sent for a work trip in San Francisco and I was still working with my team in London. And we had a really big launch coming up and I didn't want to let the team down. And I did the typical thing of saying yes to everything. And I was telling people, don't worry, it's fine if I'm on a different time zone, I can adjust. And so I had full days of meetings in San Francisco and then more meetings when I was going home in the evening to keep up with what was going on in London. Then a few more hours of working on my own to kind of act on whatever was decided during the London meeting so I could send them, etc. I did this for a few days. And I had like a meeting where it was probably like 3 a.m. For, for me with the team in London. And I had worked on this research report. And my um, colleague uh, told me, oh, you know, this part of the report, I would have maybe done it a little bit differently. And I started crying. It was not even a bad thing. It was just normal constructive feedback. And I started crying. At the time, I pretended that my internet connection was not good. And so I was like, oh, can't hear you anymore, close the laptop. And I went to bed for that night. And the day after I, um, I canceled a few meetings. I told them, Hey, let's do these meetings when I'm back on Monday in London. And I talked to my team when I got back and, uh, and yeah, we, it, it was very helpful because we realized that I was probably not the only one on the team going through something similar. But for me, it was, uh, probably more difficult because of that trip with the time zone difference but the folks back in London were also struggling so talking about it was actually good for myself where we figured out what are the priorities like you know no one should have should work almost 20 hours a day um, and it also helped create systems and the team so how do we ring the alarm if something like if we feel like we're uh, starting to get too strained on a mental level um, how do we, like, we installed a cutoff where we would not be able to send emails after 8 p.m., for example. So that was a great way to start these conversations. So yeah, for me, the sign was starting crying on a meeting. And then once I started looking back, I realized that there were so many little signs that I didn't pay attention to at the time. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, I imagine such a common story, but it, it made me think about how bad humans are at being the first person to say, I think there's a problem here. You know, like, oh, I think something's wrong. And um, oh, I can't even remember the research, but it, it must've been when I was studying my A-levels. So when I was, you know, a teenager and there was research into um, conformity and there were these interview candidates in a room do you remember? And then there's smoke coming in the room and nobody says anything. And they're all like, okay. <laughs> it really highlights how on a day-to-day -day level, difficult it can be to just raise that alarm. And I suppose, yeah, yeah you had the, you had the tears in, in, in the meeting and that, that might've been enough for you to realize. It's interesting to notice that the, what seemed to come out of that were some organizational changes or, or team level changes. And, and if you could kind of click your fingers and magically across all teams make some changes, I wonder what you might implement. 
Yeah, I just want to uh, go back to what you say about conformity because I think it's super interesting. And we are social animals. We survived because we're able to, like, very often put ourselves uh, in the background and focus on the well-being of the community, which is, you know, evolutionary speaking, is a survival mechanism, and it, it's great. But in organizations such as today, which have no basis in evolution or whatever like it's like a completely artificial way of creating value um those uh, kind of you know survival mechanisms that we have can actually be counterproductive so i think that the conformity thing is definitely an example of this where we are intuitively we always feel like the best thing to do is to go with the flow when it comes to group dynamics whereas sometimes being the first person to, to talk about something that's wrong can be incredibly helpful. And I agree, incredibly terrifying uh, to, to be that first person. Um, so yeah, just wanted to come back on this. And in terms of one thing that I would be able to change, it's actually related to this. Um, I would love for teams to and organizations to create more psychological safety for employees. That's the number one thing, as I think. And then everything else uh, can, can go from there but creating enough psychological safety where it is okay to talk about mental health. It, it is okay to talk about toxic productivity. It is okay to talk about all of these topics without fear of being judged, without fear of being considered lazy, without fear of being considered not performant in your job. This for me would be the number one thing. Like if I could, you know, like, how do you say in English? Click your fingers. Is yeah. that how it? Yeah. If I could do that, uh, that's the number one thing I would change. What phrase were you thinking of? Click your finger. Like it's as in I thought you were doing a direct translation. Yeah, I'm I'm actually I can't find it in French, but I heard you saying I was like, is that the right thing I heard? Yeah, yeah. But uh click it, yeah, clack in French it would be like click your fingers or clack your finger. Like so it's it's similar but not exactly the same. And I always get confused when I try to do a direct translation from French. I have spoken to Jane Garza who works for Nobel and we talked a lot about psychological safety. I, I totally agree. I, I It's so hard to do as well, because if we're thinking about fast-paced, stressed environments, the space and time that is required to make people feel safe, to make mistakes and all of this kind of stuff is, is a lot. But it, it inspired me to, to make a resource. Um, it's just two pages. And, um, and yet yeah, it's about uh, kind of reflecting on the different areas that Edmondson talks about and then going through a quick process to think, okay, like, how is this in our team? And like you said, that would obviously be a starting point, not, not an end point. I suppose I'm interested why you, you seemed really like that is the thing straight away. And I, and I wondered why. Yeah. Um, the, the reason why I think it's the most important thing is because I think anything else won't work if you don't have the space to just talk about it. So for me, psychological safety is the, The, the basis that it's the minimum, the bare minimum you need to be able to raise your hand when something is wrong, to be able to have team conversations where together you can make the necessary organizational changes to for everyone to be as productive as possible while taking care of their mental health. Um, and, and it's, you know, creating also a culture where it is okay to say that things are wrong. It is fine. It is fine that you, you're not going to be the one being judged for saying something is wrong. Ideally, you should be thanked to say, hey, thank you so much for getting out of your comfort zone and getting taking this, this personal risk to tell us that there's something that's not quite working right now. So that's why I think it's the most important thing. And it's both a, a team thing and an individual thing. I have this tool that I think is, is so helpful where to create psychological safety is the personal user manual. And, uh, and it's a fun thing to fill where anyone new joins the team. And the same way when you order a piece of furniture, you get this manual saying, this is how it works and you should go about it this way. Um, the personal user manual is a place where the person can say, 
this is the best way to communicate with me. For example, if you have feedback, I'd rather receive it over email so I have time to digest it and think about it. Or maybe I'd rather do it face-to-face so I can ask you as many questions as possible. Um, I'm someone who rather have very direct feedback or actually be nice with me because I, I can, you know, I can sometimes take it the wrong way if you're a bit too direct with me. Or I'm more of a morning person, more of an evening person, et cetera, et cetera. And there's so many little things like this where if you write them down and you share, everyone shares their personal user manual with everyone else in the team, it also helps in fostering this psychological safety because it means that everyone is accepted, whatever their work style, and everyone is aligned in the sense that the goal is to do great work and for everyone to feel great. And that everyone is making the effort to create space for their teammates to be themselves and to be able to communicate about whatever they need to communicate about. Mm, Yeah, totally. And so I've seen a couple out there, but the one that I know of is by Cassie Robinson. Yeah, I haven't seen this one. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll send it to you afterwards, but it's very much what you described. And um, I did it for the first time recently. So at the beginning of this month, a trainee psychologist joined the team that I work for and I'm going to be, I'm I'm one of the people supervising. And so I was like, okay, like what, you know, how can we start this? What, what things can we do? And I did my user manual first and, and then, you know, and I gave it to them as a, as a kind of an example and also a way to, to get to know me. And I started it thinking, okay, I've just got to do this. So they have a model and after about five minutes, I was like, wow, this is really useful for me to know. <laughs> and it made me realize how many of my colleagues don't know a lot of the content on there. It was such a, yeah, such an enriching process for sure. Yeah, I love that because that's that's the, the thing with it is that it is a, a team tool in order to for people to work better together, but it is also an individual tool. And I think even for people who don't work as part of a big team, it can be an enlightening exercise to learn more about your your working style and what you prefer and ask yourself questions that maybe you've never asked yourself. The feedback part, for example, you can ask some people and say, what's the best way to give you feedback? And they'll say, wait, I actually never thought about that. I don't, I don't know what's the best way to give me feedback. And so... The, the personal user manual is also a way for yourself to reflect on this and figure out actually in an ideal world, how would people work with me? And if I was feeling really brave, I would give it to my colleagues and say, do it about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that me that would be, and, and see what you just said, for example, in a team that has high psychological safety, that would not be a problem to do because you would just see it as an opportunity to learn even more about yourself and you would not be scared to receive stuff that you know is mean or anything you would just be like oh amazing I'm going to get constructive feedback from my colleague Mm -hmm. yeah for sure I will put a link to Nest Labs in the show notes it covers so much content and and you write so much content and I was really curious to know your process of deciding what to cover you know because everything seems to be like from my point of view really really high quality and relevant and so I suppose I was just noticing there's a lot of content and it's always good content how does that happen yeah I have um okay so the very first thing the the basis of why I write so much is that I block an hour and a half every morning so that's the first thing um so from you know usually like 8 a.m. to 9.30, I'm I'm writing. So that helps a lot in terms of consistency and being prolific with articles. And the second thing is that I always try to generate ideas on the go all the time. So I have a note on my phone that is a very long list of lots of different topics that I think about whenever I'm having a conversation with a friend or I listen to a podcast or I read a book or, or sometimes I'm I'm just walking on the street, just mind wandering and be like, oh, actually, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. Um, Once I get home, I always take the time to take these and turn them into more like permanent notes uh, in my note taking system. I personally use Rome, but that allows me to just give a bit more meat to it because what I put in in my 
on my phone is just two, three words. So by the time I'm home, I still remember it. But if I only kept it as is, you know, three weeks later, I would not remember exactly what was the thought that I was having. So I do that. And I also try to always connect my notes together, find interesting connections. And just by doing this every day, I generally never really look for ideas. I just always find like, oh, that's an interesting connection. These two things together are quite interesting. And I can pick that as a topic to write about for that week, for example. So that's kind of my three-step process of having taking very quick notes on the phone, meteor notes in my note-taking system, connecting them together, and then just sitting down and writing about them. And most of the time, I write each article in one sitting. Uh, the, the longer ones that are more in-depth can take two sittings to, to finish. But in general, I don't spend weeks on one article. Mm. So if I remember correctly, Rome, it allows you to connect together what do they call it? Bi-directional linking? Is that the yeah. phrase? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you introduced me to that. And it kind of changed the game because I use Google Keep and I like it. But the exact problem is what they've solved, which is that it doesn't, it doesn't link to everything, you know, and, and, and you end up with schema, essentially, yes. uh, which is such a cool thing to be able to have, especially for what you're describing with your, with your note taking. And I guess I was, I was also interested in how you decide to take something to the, okay, this could be an academic article stage, because I think you call it mind framing. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I'd love you to talk about that. But I, but I noticed you have two articles on quite different topics. And I suppose I wondered what the process was for being like, oh, there could be something here that might be useful on an academic level. Yeah, I um, I write, if I decide to write like more of an academic paper, it's uh, it's usually when I start looking at research and I can't quite find what I'm looking for. Um, very often, all of the Nest Labs articles, they're more me learning about some science that's already quite established and sharing um, what I learn with my community, with my readers, etc., Whereas if I decide to write more of an academic paper, it's me stumbling upon something where I'm like, oh, it's weird. Like, there's not much. There's really not much. And so in those cases, I spend much more time digging and trying to find other papers and seeing if I can connect them together to try to understand the topic better. Um, in the case of mind framing, which is a word that I coined, I was really looking for, is there a personal growth framework somewhere specific, specifically for creative people and by creatives I include writers artists uh, coders uh, anyone who creates something new where there was nothing before and most of the personal growth frameworks were really for either students or employees at companies for people who are more entrepreneurial there was nothing so that's why I wrote this one where I really tried to find the very few papers that were touching upon what it would look like for people who don't have the external scaffolding of school or a company. Like what, what is, is it like to create your own productivity scaffolding and creativity scaffolding if you don't have that external one? So yeah, that's my thinking when I decide to do more of a paper or just an article on Nest Labs. And with mind framing, I suppose I'm interested to hear a bit more about how it might be applied by a creative. Yeah, I, um, I see lots of, creatives being stuck with creative projects because they try to rush to the finish line whereas in lots of the the papers that I read that were looking at how can you be creative on the long term and, and work on ambitious projects you really have to see it as an iterative process rather than one linear step-by-step -step recipe that you can apply to to get to your result so in mind framing there's um there's four steps shape called pact act react and impact so the pact phase is just committing to working on something without necessarily focusing on the specific end goal but just with the the general objective of improving in an area of creativity so for example a pact could be i'm going to write for one hour and a half every day which is mine 
Um, but you could have, I'm going to code for an hour every day, or I'm going to, if you want to become, you know, a great mentor, I'm going to mentor people for uh, an hour every two days. So that's your pact. Then the act is really about actually doing it. So committing to it, put it in your calendar, show up. And there's lots, again, of productivity and metacognitive strategies that you can use to make yourself consistent. And the react part is, so there's something called the generation effect. It shows that in order to better understand and remember something, the best thing you can do is create your own version of it. So this is why I write the articles on Nest Labs because they really help me consolidate what I'm studying at university. And this is also why if you're learning anything, if you have any creative endeavor, it's much better to create your own thing, to code your own app, to draw your own illustration, to really write your own article versus watching a video on YouTube describing the process versus reading a tutorial. So React is really about not only, you know, don't just do the tutorials and follow them, then really try to do your own version, make it your own and share that with people. So that can be a Twitter thread where you're like, hey, I learned this. These are the five steps to do this that I came up with by learning this. Share your journey, react, etc. And then impact is the last one. Once you've done that in an iterative way for several you know, rounds and you've been doing this for a few weeks, or more depending on how ambitious you are with the creative process, work on the way bigger project. Something where you're like, I think I have the skills, but I'm also quite scared of this. That, that, looks, that looks hard and something impactful. So for someone who's learning how to code, that could be, I'm going to build my first full web app. For someone who's writing blog articles, could be, I'm going to publish my first ebook. For someone who does illustrations, is like, I'm going to work on a series of illustrations and I'm going to try and get them uh, in an exhibition in a local cafe, cafe in my neighborhood, for example. So what's an impactful version of what you've been doing before? So that's the PACT, ACT, REACT, IMPACT framework of mind framing. And I believe it's also an acronym in French. PARI, which is, means bet in, in French. Yeah, that was convenient uh, that it sounded good like that. Yeah. Did that come afterwards? Uh, I think I they would, I think I had three out of the four letters. One of them didn't do that. And I did like check. I was like, is there a way to say the same thing I'm trying to say here with the letter that would actually fit it? So no, that was not magical. That, yeah. yeah. You also did a piece of research, which I haven't read. I don't think I've been able to get a, a version of it on alternative models of relationships. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When yeah. did you do that? And how, how did that come about? I did that years ago. I, uh, when I was living in San Francisco, I discovered like this whole, um, you know, different culture, different approach to relationships where it, it was not necessarily about, you know, the model that we have of monogamy um, is, um, is something that lots of people take for granted and think is the only way to go about things. And I'm always curious when I discover like a, another way of building relationships. Uh, and in San Francisco, in Portland, also in the US, uh, polyamory is a big thing. Lots of people have this alternative model of relationships. So it's the same. I was super curious about it. So I was like, I want to understand it better. And so I did this big survey, uh, I remember like maybe 800 people or something like that where um who were polyamory or in open relationships or in lots of different alternative models of relationships and um and uh yeah i tried to understand was there any differences in genders or 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 like non-genders was there any differences in ages were there any differences in the world etc so that was a really interesting project where i really tried to go a bit more granular and try and understand what was going on here and would everyone be able to try this model of relationship or, or was there something more deeply ingrained that made it so that the vast majority of people are monogamous in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. When I, yeah, just when I was, um, I can't remember how I got to the, the webpage, you know, you know, those, they're like academic Facebook and yeah. they have, they have the different papers on it. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's so, that's such an interesting um contrast yes yeah, so I had to ask about the story 
Yeah, I'm just, I, I, I'm always very, like, curious about stuff that's new and I'm trying to, to get. So, yeah, and I expect that in the future on that research, like on ResearchGate, like the research uh, for Facebook, I'll probably have even more papers where at looking at them, people would be like, why is she studying so many different things that don't seem connected? But in general, I'm just passionate about understanding how the mind works. And I think there's lots of different angles you can take to understanding that. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm hesitant to open this up because they're, they're, I, I feel like we could talk for another hour just about this. But there is a narrative in our society around specialism and, and getting very good at one particular thing. And I think that often that route can be reduced down to focus on just one thing. And actually, for me, psychology is my thing, but it's so broad. But I feel like things that I read about flow state and things that I read about compassion and things that I read about suffering all influence my work with children and families. What you just said really resonated that, you know, if someone was to look at my research gate one day, I don't have a research gate page just yet, that they would see all of these different things and they might not understand how they're all linked together. But that's kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember who created that uh, kind of metaphor of the, the hedgehog and the fox, where the hedgehog is the one who has that one big idea and they're going to work on just that thing. And the fox has lots of small ideas. And what I think very I find really interesting. So I'm definitely a fox and that sounds like you're, you're a fox too. But I think that foxes, if they keep on exploring lots of different, like seemingly smaller ideas, they can have bigger ideas emerge uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's not necessarily, lots of small ideas can lead when they connect it together, can lead to bigger ideas. If you give them enough time and if you, make sure to be intentional in the way you connect them and you make that effort. So I, I think even foxes can have big ideas, but they're going to approach the creative process in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever read this book will change the world? I think it's called. It, so it's, it, I believe the premise was a uh, hundred thinkers were told if you could tell everybody in the world one thing, what would it be? And so it's a hundred different essays. I'm just looking to see, I can't see it on my bookshelf. Um, It must be somewhere else. But um, there was an article, I think by someone called Jason Zvig. And it talked about a way that you might be able to cultivate creativity. And the, the process was read something outside of your area that you normally focus in, in a place you don't normally work or rest in every day and the idea being that your brain will just try and find the patterns over time and uh yeah I really I like that idea of just injecting different things and then intentionally thinking oh I wonder what we might be able to create out of this I love that I I think that's that's why you know going back to to Rome as a tool for thinking this is why I love it so much because this is the process you just described of taking uh, content and information and data from lots of different areas that are seemingly disconnected and then putting them together in a place where you can connect them together and play with those links um, is exactly what I do and what I enjoy doing and um, you know it's it's a bit of a cliche thing to say but I do believe everything is connected uh, it's just that some connections are more obvious than others and to me it's really fun to try and uncover the less obvious connections between different areas of research yeah something it might be nice to finish on uh is just something that yeah that i wanted to say which is that in narrative therapy there's this idea of when somebody has died uh, you know we have different options available to us and we can acknowledge the loss and, and lots of cultures do that but we can also consider the traits about a person that we want to take forward and we can try and reconnect with that at different points. And this morning, I actually, I came across a piece that you wrote about your grandma. Yeah. And it took me on this wonderful trail of, of research about um, learning what a Mendex is. Yeah. But I also just thought it was a really 
a beautiful thing to share and a lovely a lovely story generally um so yeah I wanted to kind of just reflect that back to you yeah I um I I realized when I lost my grandma a couple of months ago that actually there was very little information left of what her life was because she couldn't write so she never wrote anything in her life, never really held a, a pen, except for she didn't even have a signature. Her signature was just a cross, basically. So, so there was no information recorded by herself about herself because she was born in Algeria and, and lived there for a big part of her life. Uh, there, there was also no records there. And it made me really want to go and ask my family and try to record the little that we could still access and put it together. And, um, and yeah, it, it brought me on this, this kind of journey of navigating through the life of my grandma and who she met and what she valued and her, her fears and, and what she loved, etc. cetera, um, which was really cathartic for me to, to do this, but which also made me realize that I wish maybe like we would record a little bit more uh, of of who we are so the people we leave behind can have this can like you know connect with you even after after you're gone mm. and that article which was an open question in the article which i i didn't answer because i generally don't know i was asking but what's the right balance between spending time recording the the experience and living fully the experience and i don't have an answer to this but that was the kind of a contributing question but this, uh, the kind of like building up this narrative of your life. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if there's something about the intentionality of the process, because I'm actually thinking that soon we might have the opposite problem. I mean, hey, I've already, I've got, I've got Facebook profiles of people who are dead, right? Uh, and like, there are these records but those records kind of happened as they were living so maybe there's something around the process that you went through in terms of okay let me summarize some likes some dislikes some connections um and it might be that 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 would help answer your question in terms of the right balance you know absolutely yeah mm. and law thank you so much it was really interesting to talk to you and an hour never really feels like enough time but in your case it definitely didn't <laughs> thank you so much for having me really love this conversation cool well i'll send you some fun things that we talked about but for now uh, if people want to reach you where can they find you um so i have a very complicated twitter handle um but uh, you can go on nestlabs.com and it has all of the information there or type my name somewhere and find me on Twitter. Twitter is still the best way to reach me if you want to talk to me. Cool. And yeah, I'll, I'll put your complicated social media handle in the show notes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.